Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Unless, of course, the History Channel, Marty. Oh, that's another thing I noped out of, like, mm-mm. Secrets of the Ancient Alien Secret Bible <laughs> Men. <laughs> Hello and welcome to All Comics Considered Episode 6. I'm Marty. You can find me on Twitter at Officer Gleason. I'm Hannah and you can find me on Twitter at Totally Rogue. I'm Nick and you can find me on Twitter at Out of the Vault. So for this week, we're going to run the gamut of comic book discussions, and we're going to start off in our personal links feature. We're going to talk about when you had to nope out of a comic book because it got too weird for you. I mean, clearly most of us are okay with Peter Porker, which I don't know, that seems pretty freaking weird, but at what point have you guys noped out because it just got too bizarre? Uh, I noped out of Chew about halfway through the first trade paperback and could not go back. Wow, you didn't get very far through that. I really didn't. That It was just gross. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're not familiar with Chew, the idea is that it stars a detective who can uh, use the powers of psychometry, uh, getting flashes of memory and emotion from objects, but he can only do it when he eats things. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I guess I guess thinking about it, knowing Nick, you're kind of a a picky eater to put it lightly. That that wouldn't really work out for you, would it? No, I have problems with food and man, that it was ugh, it was just repulsive. It really is on my list of books to read, and I think I got it from a, a humble indie bundle. So I just haven't had the time to read it yet. Ugh. I am not a picky eater, so I mean, I wouldn't eat people, but... Thank you for qualifying that. Like, just just so you know, guys. Marty's not a cannibal. He was accused of being cannibal in college once. I, I was? Yeah. Who accused me of being a cannibal? Brother Jed. Oh, that's right, because I was Catholic at the time. Yeah. Yeah. He went back, he went to prison. Yeah. For the record. <laughs> anyway. You you guys, uh, you have some interesting stories. <laughs> I can't remember. I forgot being, he called all Catholics cannibals. Yeah. And I was, yeah. Uh, okay. So I think that uh, Marty and I are actually going to talk about the same comic. He just noped out a lot sooner than I did. Uh, and that would be the Ultimates. Um, the Ultimate Universe version of the Avengers 
And I actually stuck around for the first, I believe it was two volumes. And then when uh, Loeb started writing it and not Millar is when I noped out of there because we got some amazingly weird and awkward and uncomfortable stuff such as shirtless Wolverine fighting dinosaurs despite the fact that he'd never been in the comic before. Um, An ancestral relationship between Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver that Wasp was surprisingly okay about. Oh, and then Wasp suddenly like switched races. Like she looked completely different between, and it wasn't. They did switch artists, but like she got a race makeover. She went from being uh, Asian to like generic redhead white chick, uh, and yeah, Steve Rogers was treated like he was um, weird and uptight for not approving of the twincest relationship. That comic got like it. It was always a little weird, but it got strange really fast. I am so glad I noped out of that book. So just really? Yeah. Yeah. I was disappointed, too, because when I was younger, I actually uh, really liked that comic. Uh, Now that I'm older and have revisited it, I realize that uh, I had bad taste. And that's actually really not... It, it it's one of the things when I think about that I'm like kind of ashamed of my younger self for liking like it definitely had that cool on the surface kind of witty like Millar's pretty good with dialogue uh, and then I like revisit the fact that Captain America you know points at the A on his helmet is like you think this stands for France and I'm like oh my god yeah that's yeah. the worst it's a little problematic a little a little so yeah I noped out of the ultimates when Cap and Nick Fury were talking about how an alien race were behind World War II. And I'm just like, (laughs) I don't make so much money that I can justify this. Like, why, why are we doing that? Like, it just makes zero sense to me that Captain America went to go fight aliens. (laughs) And like, let's be clear. I am totally cool with 616 Captain America not just fighting aliens, but getting the entire galaxy behind him as they fight the Beyond, uh, not the Beyonders, as they fight the Builders. Totally fine with that, but change his origin story so that World War II is about aliens. (laughs) No, no, that's just... I am cool with a talking cybernetic raccoon. I am not cool with World War II aliens. But yeah, noping out of the Ultimates because of the changes to Cap in World War Two is uh... because seriously, why would they tell Cap about the aliens? Like that just makes no sense. <laughs> um. That comic had like, God, I. I... It's going to hurt, like, it's going to cause me physical pain, but I really should go back and read the first two volumes. Because there were some seriously, like, clever twists. Like, their Loki looked like Neil Gaiman on purpose. Um, You really had no idea for quite a while if Thor was actually Thor, or if Donald Blake was insane and just thought he was Thor. Uh, Like, there, there was some shining moments of actual like this is kind of neat i like this in the midst of cap 
being incredibly nationalistic and suddenly fighting aliens and incest and oh god why so comic have to be like that so correct me if i'm wrong but when the ultimates was coming out wasn't brubaker writing cap um probably like that should have been about the same time frame so it's clear we all have our own tolerances for when something gets just too weird. Uh, real quick, uh, nowhere the head of a dead celestial too weird for anybody. No, that's badass. Okay, yeah, just that's checking. pretty badass. All right, I'm in the same boat. So, okay, I mean it's a little um, Unicron. I wonder which came first. I think Unicron. Unicron came first. Yeah, I'm saying, wow, Nowhere didn't exist until 2008? Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Shit. So that was actually probably created by someone that watched the Transformers cartoon as a kid. Probably. Let's I see. mean, Unicron also pretty cool, so I, I'm, yeah. I'm oh, yeah. okay with this. Uh, I just rewatched Guardians over the weekend, and the Nowhere sequence was really, really visually impressive. And also just... Like when Drax goes flying into that v- into that vat of like what is probably cerebral spinal fluid or something, it was just really well used. Like it was very well implemented. It made it made that area feel more real. Uh, and I actually saw a very cool sizzle reel where they actually showed how the inside of nowhere was fully modeled. It wasn't just like you know flat matte backgrounds at any point. It was fully three D modeled inside. That's pretty so. impressive. Yeah, they did a really good job on that. I will uh, show note that video. So I'm looking at Nova number eight from January 2008. Uh, Dan Dan Abnett and Andy Lansing created Nowhere and the Luminals. And this looks like something I should check out. Was that, which Nova was that? That was Richard Ryder. Way before Sam Alexander. Now that we've gotten the weird comics out of the way, we're going to focus on a comic that we all agreed to read. Last week in episode four, we said that we were going to read the first three issues of Hickman's Fantastic Four run, The Council of Reeds arc. And so, if you've been reading along, we're going to give you the opportunity to post and comment and call us out on your thoughts, feelings, and vague misgivings about this arc and about this Fantastic Four, Hickman's Fantastic Four arc in its entirety. So who wants to start and share their opinion about these first three issues? So I was really like divided when I went into this. Um, I've been wanting to read Hickman's Fantastic Four. Uh, I'd asked Marty for some guidance on it, which is where we actually came up with the idea of doing our team up read along uh, because I've never been that interested in the Fantastic Four in the past. And I've heard this, you know, amazing stuff about Hickman's run. So I'm glad I started reading it. Um, I was a little bit disappointed when the first major arc centered around Reed Richards, who is... I really don't like the guy. Like, I have never read anything at all that makes me either empathetic, identify with, or enjoy the character. Um, I just kind of knew him as that douchebag from the Illuminati. Mm Mm-hmm. And the first two, I I really liked what 
Hickman did because I feel like the first two issues of this arc reinforced that. And then that third issue at the end, of course, the twist subverted it. And uh, it still wasn't enough for me to really be like, yay, Reed Richards. But it was enough for me to be like, well, thank you for not making the douchiest choice possible. I appreciate that. It does a pretty good job of boiling down the uh, struggle that Reed Richards goes through that makes him interesting when he's written well. Yeah, what, <clears throat> say more about that. Uh, the entire idea of uh, he is the smartest man. There's no one that can even come close to comparing to him. And as the smartest man, he is essentially able to, at different points in time, predict the future. And it is essentially up to him, uh, at least from his perceptions, uh, to be the sole person in the driver's seat of humanity uh, steering us towards the future. And the, the struggle that he goes through is whether or not he can make those decisions, whether or not he should make those decisions. Is anyone else capable of making them? So, Nick, I'm going to call you out here. Uh, and I don't know if it's on tape or not. I know. Oh, I hate Reed Richards. Mm-hmm. And? And what uh, else do you uh, hate? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that you have a recording somewhere of me saying that I hated the Council of Reeds. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to eat those words. This was a fantastic run. Oh, I'm going to use that sound effect. That's me and doing my victory lap. <laughs> Okay. He's he's doing a touchdown dance right now. I, I well, I would be. Um, you'd hear my chair squeak too much for the recording if you did. Um, what about this particular run just changed your mind on that? Um, several things. I'm actually trying to. Sorry, my freaking account swapped over to a different screen, and now I'm trying to find my way back. There were specific panels I wanted to talk about. Uh, the panel that sold me on the uh, on the arc itself uh, was on page 22. It's the full page panel of uh, Reed walking into the council chamber of all of the different reeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shot just sort of blew me away in that uh, there was a writer out there that was finally grasping the full scope of what's possible with the multiverse. Um, I've always felt that uh, the multiverse stories often shortchange things by thinking in a very linear direction. They're, you know, thinking about face punching rather than uh, the possibilities when you consider that uh, not only is the universe infinite, but there are infinite universes. Um, and this run really just uh, took that idea and ran with it in a way that was, you know, beautiful. And yeah, I mean the last page is incredible. The three reeds holding up the uh, infinity gauntlets. That I mean, that's just amazing. Like, what a great way to end the first issue of this run. Uh, you know, leaving everyone hanging and wondering. Uh, you know what's going to be up with these three dudes because typically when we see you know someone posing. Uh, on a comic page holding up a shining infinity gauntlet, they are not up to anything good. Hannah, what about you? Did Was there something from these first three issues that uh, surprised you? Not just the, the twist, but something else that surprised you about what's going on in uh, Hickman's run. So I definitely want to agree with Nick. Um, there are 
there's an atmosphere of both dreadful unease and awe-inspiring um infinity in these three arcs or in these three issues uh, they do a really really good job of having this atmosphere of how important what these characters are trying to tackle is um and i think the thing that always gets me about reed richards is whenever i read anything with the character when he is taking center stage i always get this feeling of like impending doom like and i i don't mean dr doom but there's like an actual sense of like something bad is going to happen. Like he's going to do something terrible with the best of intentions and it's going to end up really badly. And I don't know if a little bit of that is just me knowing some of like in a meta sense, some of what happens with like the ultimates version of the character or stuff that happens a little bit later on the line uh, that ties into what's going on in Marvel right now. But I thought those first three issues really nailed that um, a mix of like that scientific greatness and that uh, I know they're trying to do the right thing, but I really don't know if they're going to. Um, the something that took me off guard for these issues was it was actually able to distill down for me what I don't like about Reed Richards, and I think me being able to identify that is really important in starting out with reading such a uh, prolific run. Um, his interactions with Sue Storm just drive me fucking crazy. He's a he is a terrible husband and father. Yeah. And in a in a in a team book that's so much about family, he is by far the weakest link of that family and it drives me nuts. Yeah, I mean he's completely disconnected from the rest of the human race. Uh, the other panel I wanted to draw everybody's attention to was actually in uh, issue 571 on page 7 uh, where Sue is talking to him in the kitchen. She says, so you've been spending a lot of time with yourself. And it, that shot of Reed sort of looking down kind of sadly saying, yes, yes, I have. You know, because you know, it's sort of a joke to us because he's been spending time with all of the other Reeds. But I felt like that panel captured the essence of Reed Richards where – he is clearly struggling with what to tell Sue, doesn't feel capable of telling her this stuff that's going on. But in the end, when you boil it down, you know, down, he's just a huge liar. He's just a big liar. Like, there's no reason he couldn't have told Sue and Johnny and Ben about what was going on. It's because he think he's he's so caught up in his own intelligence that he thinks not only does he have that hubris of thinking that since he's the smartest guy, not only in the room, but in the world, that all of this is on him. He also is so condescending to the people that he loves that he doesn't trust them to get involved. I think that's one of the big themes of, of Reed. You know, he tries to tackle it by himself, screws up. He invites other people to help him clean up the mess that he has created because he overthought it or didn't trust people around him. I also think that throughout the run, he becomes better. And there's some clips, there's some panels in, I don't know if it's in this arc or if it's shortly after this arc, where we see how Reed is like, 616 Reed is the best family version of Reed that we will see. That's, which isn't that great, 
but still better than every single other one of the reeds that we have interacted with. Literally, like that's definitely the emphasis of the end of these three issues of the end of the Council of Reeds when Reed Richards decides to choose his family. It's definitely demonstrating that, hey, he's the only one, the one, I shouldn't say the only one, he's the one who cares the most about them and who isn't willing to sacrifice that. That doesn't make him good at this. It does, however, make him better than all of the other versions of himself that we've seen. And it's also an argument to be made then that Hickman's Reed may be the best version of Reed we have seen to date. Now I'm going to argue that, well, no, I don't know if I can argue that, but I, I don't remember all of Fraction's run because like Hickman's run is fresh in my mind still, but um, it'll be interesting because Fraction takes over right after Hickman's finishes, and I think it's going to be another interesting thing to compare and contrast so i also want to take a look at the the infamous doom scene uh in the second issue i thought that was honestly pretty revelatory about reed because uh the the excuse that they give for that is that uh the, the specific line they say is you don't know it yet uh but you learn that there's no greater threat in the universe than doom his appetite is unmatched that's just not true. Like, you can't tell me that out there in the multiverse, the infinite multiverse, there aren't visions of... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, versions of Doom that are, in fact, good. Uh, this is clearly the Reed's pursuing a personal agenda. They're just, mm -hmm. you know, they're afraid of Doom. So they're destroying him throughout the universe no matter what. Like... Their their mission is to fix everything, you know, solve everything. That's the that's the question that leads Reed to turn the machine on, um, and yet they're not solving everything. They're just pursuing another personal agenda. Well, and since when has Reed Richards ever really been interested in solving issues like that? Like, I'm going to point back to say Civil War when he makes this horrible prison to imprison people who are essentially just political protesters. Like I've never, so I'm not as familiar with the character as other people. Like I said, this is the first time I've really read a lot of fantastic four, but I don't remember ever hearing him be interested in like rehabilitation. Not uh, so much. Yeah. Like all of his solutions seem extremely extreme. But they also contrasted that in this particular episode with the way that he deals with uh, the wizard and the wizard's clone. Mm -hmm. uh, when they, you know, they take down the wizard and he's like, oh, 
you know, you're you're sick. I'll 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 visit you and hope maybe we'll public publish a paper together. And then he takes the clone in. Yeah, Bentley cl- twenty three or thirty. I mean, yeah. It's sort of clearly what they are. What they're going for here is to illustrate the difference in you know read six sixteen with the other reads. But mm-hmm. so my question is, do you guys think that is just a writer? taking another tack on the character or do you think that that's actually character development like do you think that that is reed growing as a person and trying to change the way that he handles things so i've read a lot of fantastic four not as much as other people but i think of the three of us i've i've read the most in fact marvel knights four uh the basic storyline of that entire series was uh the fantastic four's accountant basically stole all of their money (laughs) <laughs> and so they lose the Baxter building and they've got to figure out how to live like normal people for a while. Reed shows a lot of compassion and it um, begins with the guy who is dying of cancer that, you know, is one of the few things that can't be cured in the Marvel Universe. And it ends, the series ends with Reed coming back to hold the guy's hand as he's dying from cancer. So he's more empathic depending on the writer. I think this particular read, Hickman's read, is also coming off of Mark Millar's run, which I am not familiar with at all. Uh, I think that Hickman is definitely trying to put, um, given Reed Richards' role in Dark Reign, in Civil War, in everything that has been done before, he's got to put his own mark on Reed Richards really quickly. And I think by the Council of Reed's is a great way for him to acknowledge, uh, you know, kind of um, indirectly acknowledge all of the reads that have come before and then say, this is why my read is different. Um, so I'm going to argue. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. That's a really, that, that's actually kind of revelatory. Like that's a really good way to put it. And also a really interesting way for a writer to take that tact and to, say hey this is how i'm making my mark and like really work it into the story i think that's a really cool way to look at it i don't know if that's what hickman was going for but i'm gonna choose to believe it because that's really cool and then i did have one question for you uh as far as reed richards goes do you think that reed richards is like legit compassionate in the microism just like the one-on-one and then when it turns into him trying to tackle these big situations he kind of loses that yeah so I do think that's what it is. Like he in the in the one on one in the small realm in the family issue, he's very much able to be empathic. But when you begin to look at large complex problems, you have to let math do the work for you. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in the way that this particular read is written and these particular um, issues are being talked about. Either in this arc, this series, or for my argument, the entirety building up to Secret War, Reed just is, at the end, he is willing to play with numbers to save the greatest number of people at the lowest cost. Which, at the end of the day, in some of the Illuminati issues of New Avengers, that is a huge, life-changing character development character changing choice that he makes and whether or not it's good or bad 
we don't really see the end. Well, as of issue 31 of New Avengers, we have not seen the end of that choice yet. So, and I'm, my argument, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Hickman's Fantastic Four run is because I think from page 16 of issue 570, we see the roots of Secret War. And I don't know if I'm right, but I'm going to try and argue it anyway. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So I don't have that comic up in front of me. Can you describe that page? Yes, it's on page 16. And I can, I think, and this is my theory, so of course I need to be pulled into it. um, Or I need to be challenged regarding it. But uh, uh, 570. So it's the first issue of our three series arc that we read on the Council of Reeds or like, you know, the the question of everything. There's a a panel uh, where it's all in green, where Reed has the wizard all wrapped up. And uh, the wizard is saying, you pretend that there's something wrong with me, but I know you see the same things I do. Math is the language of God, Richards. We've both done the calculations. The world is going to tear itself apart, and there's nothing you can, nothing either of us can do to stop it. We've been judged, and I'm arguing that that panel is setting up everything that follows in this arc and in Secret War, which I argue is just a continuation of Hickman's Fantastic Four and Future Foundation runs, because the world is the worlds are literally tearing themselves apart. The world will tell it, tell itself apart in Battle World. There is something about being judged going on within the Secret War. At least that's part of the subtext. And there's there's talk of you know in the Illuminati books later on about judging who gets to live and who gets to die. Uh, the Black Panther, T'Challa, and Reed have that conversation about judging who gets to be saved in their multiversal lifeboat. So it's. Given what we've seen, and we should put this in the show notes, and every time we talk about this run, we should put it back in there, Hickman's uh, infamous outline of Fantastic Four. It's just this beautiful spiral of information that shows that this has been planned for a very long time. So I'm arguing that this is setting up right here the Secret War. Or at least implying that there will be this epic uh, judgment and tearing apart of worlds. I could believe that. I mean, well, I mean, he's also definitely, I can't, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't also say that it's also foreshadowing what's going to happen next, but it's in a later issue where we are told what's going to happen next, where the foreshadowing actually happens. And I'm thinking that whatever early inklings of secret war is suggested in this panel i could definitely believe it i don't feel like i can say if i think that's true or accurate until i've both finished reading through hickman's run Mm -hmm. and i understand exactly what more is going on with the secret wars right um it because you definitely run up to the well is that just really convenient foreshadowing that just so happens to also seem applicable to Secret Wars, or is this Hickman planning something since when was this? 2009. 2009. Now, granted, if there's any writer that's going to do that, I absolutely believe it's Hickman. Now, 
this is the weakest argument that I have for this run being the foundation for Secret War. How by the time we get to his last few issues of the book, we are going to see that no Secret War is being planned and discussed by 2012 because that's when he stops writing the book, and that's when we get there. We'll notice, and that's where this all goes down. I mean, it's definitely worth noting that um, the MCU Phase 1 plan started in 2008. And, like, the MCU Phase plan is about a 20-year plan. And Secret Wars is certainly something that ties into that because continuity is such an important thing to Marvel right now. And not just the 616 continuity, but those multiversal worlds continuity. So, again, I wouldn't really be surprised if they at least had something big in mind dating back that far. Because it's basically as soon as they figured out that this is going to work because Iron Man was the smash success, shit started to get real. I apologize you could hear me uh, opening up a comic, but I have um, New Avengers 32, The Fall of Gods, uh, that's right on my desk, specifically because of the um, what we're going, what's going on here with Secret War, the lead-up to Secret War, where time runs out. But um, we see the multiversal Avengers, and I just had, you mentioned it, so I had to mention the multiversal Avengers, uh, which is just, man, guys, I can't, I cannot stop squeeing about this book. But we'll get to that later. Anyway, what do we think that this uh, arc of the Council of Reeds solve everything is establishing here? I mean, Nick said um, it's establishing Reed Richards. Hannah said it's establishing. Reed Richards is not the greatest douchebag in the Marvel Universe. What are some other things that this is establishing? Well, the Council of Reeds, for one thing. That certainly is not going to be the last time we see that. True. That's very true. Well, no, it's not. It's not. The no, it's not. <laughs> as, as Marty swallows how much he wants to spoil things. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm like, oh, wait, but oh, oh. And then there's this. And then, yeah. So let's cover my mouth and go a little, get a little bit giddy. Um, uh, the sudden appearance of the Celestials again. Yep. Again, an argument for the universal spanning. Uh, the Council of Reeds exists in a space outside of space, time, and all universes. If that doesn't tie in to Secret War, then whatever. I just, how can it not? Hannah, do you think this story established anything other than those than those particular issues? Um, I think it was trying to establish a lot about dynamics of the Fantastic Four as a family, um, particularly with how Reed interacts with them. Like, so yeah, it did a ton for world building, which was really interesting, but I felt that the point of starting a run out with a story about Reed was to make that be the story about Reed and then be like, okay, but there's other people in the Fantastic Four and it's about time we got to talk about them. 
Uh, and I believe Hickman actually talks a little bit about that in his like afterward to the first uh, arc, which was uh, he basically when he pitched um, or when he was asked what he would do with uh, Fantastic Four, if he was writing it, uh, he said he would write stories that weren't about Reed Richards. And then when he was asked to write it, he immediately pitched a story about Reed Richards um, because that's such a backbone to what the Fantastic Four is about. But then it's really important to establish that and then move forward and right. not just focus. Because it's not Reed Richards, the comic. It's the Fantastic Four. No, I agree. I think this book and this arc also establishes Reed as the complex character that he is, his relationships. I think it also uh, reestablishes Valeria and Franklin as major parts of the Fantastic Four mythos. Um, I mean, for a long time, Franklin was one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. This book, and especially these first three, is Hickman saying, this is me taking the Fantastic Four, and now once this platform is established, I'm going to tell some great stories about love and family and exploration. And I think for the rest of the book, he's going to do that especially as he gets into the second arc where we run into the four cities, where we are reestablished with the Inhumans, where uh, Doom comes back. I think it's without establishing Reed and putting his own stamp on Reed, because Reed is the face of the Fantastic Four, even if he isn't the one that keeps it together. I think he's giving us the opportunity and taking the opportunity to say, this is how I'm going to change this comic book. Yep, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Also, there are a lot of weird-ass Reed Richards out there in the multiverse. Um, some of whom I'm more familiar with just because I remember them from later issues. But like, Hercules-style Reed Richards? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, the Blob Reed Richards. The Blob Reed Richards? Silver Surfer-style Reed Richards? You know, kind of a Nova-ish Reed Richards. Star or a Star Brand. I think he's a Star Brand Reed Richards. One Giant or the other. Head Reed Richards, Rock Guy Reed Richards. I can't wait to you get to the issue where it talks about Rasputin Reed Richards. And I had to go back after I read <laughs> that one to make sure like what that happens the, to him. That was the guy that got some of his DNA mixed with Doom, right? Yeah. But um So as we're talking about this, we've talked about the books in particular, but I think the most uh, stunning issue was when, and we're going to spoil it here because we wanted you to read along with us, and if you didn't read the first three, you didn't do your homework, where the Celestials just zap two of the three Infinity Gauntlet-wearing Reed Richards. Yep, just fry them. Including Rasputin Reed Richards. Um, and when I, I, when I... Later on, we hit, we run into that Reed Richards as like a filler episode, but I had to go back and make sure that he died because otherwise he just was become such a great villain for Reed and the Fantastic Four. But he dead, so like really dead. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think he's coming back. He did have an awesome last line though. Yeah, he did. None of them went out like chumps, which is also something I can really appreciate. Like, when a character dies, it should be epic. 
the one dude, the one Reed Richards with the prime symbol on his chest or whatever it is, he's he's going to carry over for a while. There is one other thing I want to add about this book, um, specifically in regards to establishing and reestablishing for me Valeria. Reed is pretty clear in the first issue that Valeria is smarter than he is. She is three years old. And my biggest complaints about this particular arc is, one, the way Reed is treating Sue. And they make amends and they, be, they become, you know, it gets better. But also, like, I know she's, like, the smartest human on Earth at this moment in time. Smarter than Amadeus Chow. But she is, like, the most precocious three-year-old ever written. So... And yeah, I um the sliding scale of ages for the Reed kids bugs the shit out of me, uh, particularly because of Valeria, because writers want to write her as like the smartest person character, but they also want to write her as a smart kid. Okay, that's cool. I can get behind that. I can't visualize her as three years old. Like she's not drawn looking like she's three years old. Um, so. To be fair, my biggest complaint about these first couple of issues is that I do not like the art when it comes to faces. I do not think they're drawn very well. That's a fair point. Granted, there's a lot of Reed Richards face in this these first three issues too, so... Yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I read ahead a couple of issues and I, <laughs> that it remains a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, like, kind of, it's, you know, older Marvel house style. I'm not a fan of house styles. It's one of the reasons I don't read a lot of DC titles right now. Um, and they're just, they're not expressive the way that I want comic book faces to be expressive. Uh, they're trying for more realistic and less cartoony. But I think they just don't look very good um, in the way that I process them. Uh, and I don't... Like, I can't visualize Valeria as three years old because she doesn't look like she's three years old. Like, maybe seven or eight I would buy, but she just looks too old. And then it's worse um, later on. So I know a little bit about what happens to her as a character because uh, she's guested in a couple of the Agent of Asgard issues that Loki has interactions with Doom later on. And it's even worse there because she does not look as young as she's supposed to be at all. How does she look in those issues? Um, probably eight to ten years old. Oh, God. I give it, I mean, that's an issue that I'm having with Valeria. And eventually I come to terms with it. Mostly because, like, honestly, it's not as weird as Aliens directing World War II for me. (laughs) Just to stay consistent. Um, are we, is anybody willing to put down a K value for these three episodes, excuse me, these three issues? Uh, point six. Point six? Yep. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with that, point six. Hmm. I'm gonna give it, I'm giving it a point eight. Are you giving it that on those three issues alone or in the greater context of the series? That's part of the problem. I'm not sure I can separate the whole thing now. Um, like as a whole, I'm giving this, I would give the series at least a 0.85. So 
especially some later issues. But so I can't un I can't separate unseparate them. No, can't I think unseparate that's important. them. That's not even the way to say the words. Uh, I can't separate them right now. So I think that's actually really important because Nick and I are going into this as you know we haven't read these at all, but you're able to look at them in the greater context of something you have read. So I think it's actually a pretty interesting contrast. Yeah, I agree. I'm also going to say I really prefer the way Fraction writes uh, Sue Storm. Uh, fun tidbit, and I don't know if we'll be able to find this because my ability to find stuff on Tumblr is below zero. But uh, Fraction wrote somewhere. If I can find it, we'll put it there. But Fraction wrote like he was the first writer to give Kelly uh, to give a uh, to give Kelly Sue. Fraction was the first writer of Sue Storm that gave her an actual advanced degree. Not just a bachelor's degree, but her first PhD. This character has been around since the 1960s. She's supposed to be super smart, and she didn't get her PhD until 2013. I have a huge problem with that as well. Yeah, the treatment of Sue Storm as a character in the greater history of Marvel is not something that I've ever been happy or comfortable with. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ, how long was she the invisible girl for? Exactly. And she's also, I mean, I think Hickman does her justice and I think Fraction does it even better. But at the end of the day, I really do think that Sue Storm gets short shrift if we talk about this too long, I'm going to go into talking about her role in the Avengers, and we can't do that. That's just too much for right now. We're going to continue to discuss uh, a lot about the Fantastic Four as we do our continu continual read-along, and I'm sure we'll get a lot more into discussing Sue Storm as a character. Yeah, guys, listeners, friends, fans, lend me your eyeballs. Go read these first three issues and talk to us about your feelings about these first three. And sound effect, hopefully, one day. All right. <laughs> so before we started recording, Nick was talking about going to Emerald City Comic Con. And he came up with this new segment called Your Ultimate Cosplay. So, Nick, why don't you take it away from here? Uh, yeah, I went to Emerald City Comic Con this weekend uh, for the Saturday show. And I was actually pretty blown away there uh, just by the sheer amount of... Uh, of people cosplaying it was just everywhere i mean it was probably 40 50 percent of the people there had costumes on of some type uh, and everybody was super into it so it just got me thinking uh you know what would the kind of each of our ultimate cosplays be uh if we had no time limit or no money or you know basically we didn't have to make the costume we could just snap our fingers and we'd have some rad costume hmm well if we had an unlimited budget would, the first thing I would do would be to hire the dudes that train Chris Pratt and Chris Ev Evans to become super buff. And that's <laughs> the first thing I would do. Um, I have no idea. Like, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say Daredevil because I've seen some pretty badass Daredevil cosplay that is not um, in the red suit. The best one I saw last year at C2E2 was a dude who was wearing Matt's holiday sweater from the last one of the last issues of Wade's Daredevil run where it just says I'm not Daredevil and it was it was brilliant it was perfect he had the cane and he was <laughs> tapping it around it was, I could not stop laughing 
But I would have maybe um maybe death from east of west. I mean, that's what the first thing that came to my my head was death from east of west was because that's just a cool white suit, white hat, pale face, long nose dude with a eye patch and something about that. Just being able to rock that look would be super awesome. Hannah, what about you? Oh, boy. That's a really hard question. So, I'm going to have to limit myself to comic book characters because otherwise we're going to be here all night. Um, I I used to do a little bit of cosplay as a teenager uh, when I was going to a lot of anime conventions. Uh, But I haven't in quite some time. I did a costume to PAX a couple of years ago, and I think that's the last time I've I've done one. Um, Hmm. Hmm. God, that really is hard. So I've always been a really big fan of um, the character Blink. Uh, back when she was one of the main characters from Age of Apocalypse uh, and then the leader of the Exiles, which is one of my favorite, like, kind of out there Marvel teams. Um, and she has a very awesome costume. Uh, plus, like, the whole, like, Elven Archer thing going on. That would be pretty cool. Um, I would actually really love to do, uh, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, particularly with like the rad, like mohawk hair. You can't see me, but I'm like wagging my finger, smiling, saying, you go girl, that's fucking badass. I'm going to (laughs) bleep that (laughs) F-bomb. One of the, uh, one of the few pieces of, of, uh, clothes I bought for myself at the con was a Carol Gore shirt, so... That's awesome. I desperately want uh, the Captain Marvel jacket that uh, Kamala wears in the first couple of issues. Of oh, her yeah. God, I want that so badly. That is such a cool jacket. I'm trying to think if there's anything really out there. Um, I keep thinking of like a crap ton of like really cool robot costumes I would love to do. Uh, but most of them are like from anime and manga. So yeah, I think Captain Marvel um, Blink would be probably pretty high. Up the- oh, uh, Power Girl. Actually, I've always loved Power Girl. I, th- I think she's awesome. And I don't care about the boob window. Fuck it. Whatever. <laughs> she owns it. She owns it. She can do whatever the fuck she wants. Who's going to tell her not to? She's fucking Power Girl. There was a badass Ultron costume uh, at ECC, uh, as well as some guys that dressed up in the classic AIM outfits, like the yellow biohazard type suits, uh, and they oh, yeah. built they built a giant Modoc that they hauled around with them. It was amazing. That's pretty phenomenal. At C two E two, there was a dude that was transforming into Bumblebee, I think. Oh yeah, I saw. I've seen pictures of that. That was pretty cool. I'm looking. I'm looking really. I'm re- I'm looking forward to going to C two E two this year. Yeah, I would absolutely do a uh, mecha costume, probably an Evangelion, because that's my favorite anime. I don't, I don't understand Evangelion at all. You'd have to tell me which one of the multiple versions I would need to watch to understand it. Is that something that got too weird for you, Marty? Did you? Uh, yep. Nope. Not as Evangelion. (laughs) Nope. Hard. Cosplay and convention season go hand in hand. Back out in Seattle, you guys just had the Emerald City Comic Con. 
So we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about comic book conventions or pop culture conventions or gaming conventions. What are some things we should know about convention and convention season? Uh, I actually so, wrote a series of articles for Dorcadia about this topic. So, Ooh. Uh, so I would say probably the most important thing to know about con going season is what cons you want to go to. Uh, you know, scope out. There are a ton of websites out there. Uh, we'll link some resources in the show notes about figuring out what conventions are near you, what conventions are in certain areas you might want to visit, uh, which ones you might know people that are going to. Um, the first major convention I ever went to, I was, oh, God, 13 years old, maybe. Uh, and it was Otakon in Baltimore because I lived on the East Coast at the time. But one of the biggest reasons I went was because I had a lot of friends online who were going and it was a really good excuse for us to meet up. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the idea of meeting up with people that you've had ver- had these friendships with that are dis- long distance or virtual is pretty cool. Yes. So. And, and, and meeting up both meeting up and meeting new people is like a huge part of a con experience. So. Yeah. I'm trying to think the first con I went to must've been Gen Con. And I don't remember if I went before I did my stint as an intern or after after, but I'm pretty sure my first convention ever was Gen Con, the gaming, the big, you know, the big gaming convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't do much to prepare. And I always end up like touring and going to the vendor tables to see what's for sale. And I tend not to spend a lot of money until the last day, unless, of course, something super awesome happens. Chicago has a couple of conventions, and I've been to Wizard World Chicago at the Rosemont. But I'm really loving Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo, uh, also known as C2E2. I bought my three-day pass, the first three-day pass last year. I bought my three-day pass already this year. Um, What I loved about it was there was a cosplay competition. The family-friendly area was super well done and good for kids of all ages. I found that the vendor tables were easy to find. Artist Alley was clean. Uh, the food there was really, really good. It was just also, for me, hella convenient considering that I live, oh, maybe like a mile east of it. So it was just super fun for me to even get to. Um, now, personally, I don't cosplay. Um, but what I've gotten out of the whole thing is seeing like how other fans react to the hobbies that I love. I get to have conversations with people. The Marvel panels have always been fun. Um, getting stuff signed, like I fanboyed out at Mark Wade's table, and I'm a little bit embarrassed. Uh, I didn't get super fanboy, but like pretty close to it. And just getting to see like your creators and talking to them like you know normal people about like their work. How you appreciate their work, what they're, what beer they're drinking. That's something else that's kind of cool about C2E2. It's got a, uh, an official beer from one of our local breweries, which is a, it's a little bit hoppy for most people, but I think it's delicious. You, you can drink at the con? Uh-huh. There's oh, just, uh huh. Oh, God. There's this, 
at Emerald City Comic Con this year, there there was a uh, like a beer tasting thing. There's a totally a beer area, and it's sponsored by Revolution Brewing, which I hope that some of the creators get to go to Rev Brewing because it's a phenomenal experience. So I, I'm I'm blown away. That's that's very new for. I didn't get to go to Emerald City this year, but uh, wow. <laughs> that's going to entirely change my con going experience. Cool. So yeah, like my con going experience is pretty in the comic book world. It's really new. But what about with you guys? Like, what are some things that you do to prepare for a con or that you do at a con? So I um, over prep for cons every single year, every single convention that I go to. Uh, and it's just my habit that I've formed from going to conventions for a pretty long time now uh i always try to pre-plan uh i get the guidebook um it's become much cooler as technology has become more integrated most large conventions use the guidebook app or something similar where they will put their scheduling uh and their panel notes and stuff like that on an app that you can use to form your own schedule so I tend to go through that pretty religiously, read through all the panels, mark which ones I find interesting, form this whole schedule, promptly ignore about three quarters of it during the actual weekend. Um, but I like to be prepared and know what's going on. So that's usually how I get ready. Plus, just you want to do like smart things like, you know, make sure you've got cash don't keep it all in one place. Anything that you would do if you're going to a major event, um, absolutely take uh, like Purell or whatever your hand sanitizer of choice is. Uh, every single packs that I went to for about four years, I got really sick afterwards, including one year where I actually ended up with pneumonia. Oh my last God. Year, yeah. Uh, last year I took hand sanitizer uh, an emergency, and I was the only person in my group of friends that didn't get sick. So I really highly recommend doing that. Uh, con crud is a thing that will happen. See, last year I got sick before the con, so I missed a whole day. I still think I got my money's worth from what I paid, but I was down for the count. So. Oh, that sucks. Uh, also, for me, always having my 3DS with me is a huge help because anytime there's a large number of nerds gathered together, you're going to get a ton of street passes. And yeah, whenever you, you have, yeah, you are. Um, and anytime you have downtime, it's nice to just sit there and kind of cycle through those and chill out. It's a good time passer if you're online or whatever and you don't have anybody with you. Yeah, my friend walked in front of the convention center. Uh, with his DS in his pocket on Friday during lunch and came away with like 60 street passes. Yeah, uh, between Eric and I, we've gotten hundreds uh, from Panera Arcade Expo. Um, we're just walking downtown during Sakura Con. Hmm. Interesting. Nick, plus, what about you? Oh, I'm sorry, Hannah, go ahead. Oh, uh, plus you can trade Pokemons. You can trade them Pokemon. I usually underprepare for cons. Actually, I I have a difficult time with cons. Um, I have a lot of social anxiety, and I, it usually makes me underprepare. And when I actually show up, feel kind of listless and nervous. And um, there's kind of this whole feeling of connection that a lot of people experience at cons that has always escaped me a little bit. And I have to say that uh, going to Emerald City Comic Con on Saturday. 
was sort of like a revelatory experience for me. I think I had some kind of therapeutic breakthrough. I just had a fantastic time. I felt completely at home with all the people around me. I was just really enthused by uh, their excitement of being there and cosplaying and just everyone really walking around with smiles on their face, you know, nerding out about superheroes and comic books. It was just fantastic. Uh, and I made a discovery that uh, it turns out at comic book conventions, the biggest fans there are the comic book artists and creators themselves. Those guys are just super excited to to be there and seeing each other's work and showing you their work and shaking your hand and talking about comics. It was just a it was a ton of fun. You guys saw the picture of Karen Gillian eating the cupcakes, right? No. All right, I will go find them right now. Yeah, how was your con? <laughs> Yeah, I saw those. <laughs> They're pretty fantastic. I am incredibly disappointed. I missed both the uh, he did a uh, none more goth panel, uh, and then they also had a new uh, Wiktiv shirt that I really wanted. So uh, I went to the Rat Queen Social Club panel uh, by Curtis Weeby, the uh, the main creator of Rat Queens, and the the panel opened with him being forced to read uh, erotic slash fic between Batman and RoboCop. So, oh my god, it was it was pretty amazing. Uh, as for how people should prepare for a con, um, well, the first thing you have to figure out is where is the con with respect to your house? Do you you know where are you going to stay when you're there? I've been to Gen Con a number of times, and there's always this group of people that go to Gen Con and just sleep on the street out in front of the convention center. That is the worst idea ever. You do not want to do that. Like, if you do not have a place to stay for a con, you do not have the resources to go to the con. You should not go. It's a bad idea. Um, Cray, you know, find somebody who's you know, hotel you can crash on their floor, or you know, think ahead early and make sure you have hotel space, but. Don't don't show up without a plan. Absolutely do not show up without a plan. Consider something like uh, in Seattle, we've got two different hostels that are nice and inexpensive uh, that you can get into, that sort of thing. Or it friends is in the area. Or you can even hook up with people on, you know, uh, there are postings on, uh, I'm sure there are postings on meetup.com, on the forums for the, whatever particular convention you're going to, uh, on Craigslist. There are always people looking for extra people to stay in their hotel room or get rides or whatever. Yeah, particularly the forums for um, cons are a really great place to find other people. And they're slightly uh, a little bit more trustworthy and just uh, dependable um like it's definitely possible to go to a con if you don't have a ton of money if it's local to you um you can you know always split rooms you can try a hostel like there's a lot of things to do but just make sure you have that plan in place Nick's right that's super important like if you do not have a comfortable place to stay uh the con is not going to be much fun for you yeah you don't want to have to be worrying about like where you're going to sleep that night yeah, I remember at Gen Con, there was like a row of cars of dudes just sleeping in their car. And they weren't big cars. They were just tiny little nerd cars full of nerd. nerds. Yeah, <laughs> I'm censoring because I don't want to make fun of my gamer brothers and sisters. But, well, mostly brothers because the I didn't see a lot of women sleeping in their own car. Um. And for C2E2, I didn't see a lot of people, like, 
there is no place you don't get to sleep around there uh in your car like the the, the Chicago police would be like get the fuck out um and I'm not going to censor that one cuz police don't censor themselves what are some of the good panels that you have seen since you've been at uh, so many cons do we want to talk about specifically comic book uh panels or or like comic book show panels or uh no just panels in general i think is fair well emerald city usually has a really large um amount of voice actors uh who come in and do really great like overdubs uh and re recordings of like classic scripts as different characters uh it's one it's it's been in the past one of the biggest draws of emerald city and those are usually absolutely hilarious um i also saw an absolutely amazing panel last year at pax that had um the guys who made the tabletop game dungeon world uh luke crane who made burning wheel uh talking about what makes what makes bad games fun essentially and it was just a fantastic panel that really taught me how to think about what i should be looking at um when i'm choosing a tabletop game to play and as somebody who is a little bit newer to that hobby it was really really interesting and really hilarious because they were not only making fun of all of us but making fun of themselves during the entire thing best i guess panels that i've seen at cons are almost always performances like the uh oh man the guys we saw at gen con the um do you remember what i'm talking about marty the improv troupe we saw oh god um no with us were you i thought you were with us i i may have been all right so here's a confession about me at gen con i uh would crash with we would get the hotel rooms together. We'd all share. I drank a lot. <laughs> so I don't remember much. The uh, No, I don't remember the Imparov troop. You think we've exhausted this topic? I think we have. Um, I also just found an article about Karen Gillan talking about Secret War, and I have been purposefully avoiding it, uh, spoiling myself, because I don't want to change my opinions of being right. So, uh, man, I, could you link me that? Oh yeah. Okay. So to recap, when you're going to the cons, make sure you got a plan. Prepare, under prepare. Don't drink as much as I have in the past. Uh, make sure you go with. Make sure you are safe and you feel like you are in a safe spot. I would also suggest. I know I didn't say a lot about this, but I would suggest making sure you know the harassment policy of the con, and if it's not a strong policy, rethink going to that con, especially if you're going to cosplay. Um, some of the people in our hobby are are assholes, and they need to not be assholes, um, but you need to be able to defend yourself against said asshole. Um, and don't ever feel apprehensive or afraid to speak up um, if you do feel like you're being harassed or if you see someone else being harassed or if you see some douchebag taking a picture of a cosplayer that isn't aware of it that might be of an intimate nature, which I've unfortunately seen a couple of times. Uh, Enforcers or volunteers or con staff are there for a reason. Feel free to approach them when you're having any kind of issue. And last but not least, 
if you want to rock a cosplay and someone says you don't have the body type for it, punch them in the motherfucking mouth and rock your goddamn cosplay. No one should be able to tell you what to do. And scene. Okay. We're going to move on from convention season. I mean, I'll be talking about C2E2, and you can probably find me there. So for our next segment, we're going to talk about (laughs) the trade or comic that you want to have turned into a movie or TV show. Something that you would like to watch with your friends that you want to have the whole world see. So you guys, I'm going to go last because I done got mine, but... What do you guys want to see come become a movie? Uh, Kingdom Come. Yes. That do you want? Be a, oh, a, go ahead. I'm sorry. Fantastic movie. It'd be have to be like a good solid three hour movie, but it's a tale that you could tell, you know, from start to finish within one feature film. Okay, animated or live action? Oh, live action. I would love to see that live action. Okay. Oh my god, it would have to have such a massive cast. Yep. Yep. They would have to find two guys that looked so much alike yet so different for Superman and uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have it? I always see Captain Marvel as Patrick Warburton these days. I don't think I could take that seriously because of Tick. Yeah, I mean that's the trouble is he's being he's like such a good humorist, but he has the you know the build and the jaw for Captain Marvel. He's a little bit older, too, though, because Captain Marvel should be slightly younger. Yeah, that's true. Especially in a Kingdom Come movie where you've got Billy Batson and Captain Marvel that are the same age. Yep. Oh, I would love to see that, though. I would love to write that. Somebody hire me to write that movie. You should just write it. (laughs) Yeah, just write it. Nick, was there a TV show that you also would love to see? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So after reading My Life as a Weapon, that would be the most incredible TV show. It is funny. The action is cool. It takes the character and turns him into, you know, like the everyman. Uh, Somehow, you know, he's a superhero. Like it's his Hawkeye, you know, and it somehow manages to turn him into the everyman of the Marvel Universe. I can see that. Yeah, Fractions Hawkeye TV show. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Plus, we'd get all the really cool Kate Bishop episodes. Yes. I would love to see uh, Marvel reach out to Milkfed Productions and just say, go ahead, make Hawkeye My Life as a Weapon. I don't know if Fraction and Kelly Sue would go for it, but um, I would give them all of my money. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Make that a Netflix show, please. Hannah, what about you? Um... So the movie I want to see is supposedly going to happen, but I don't know if it's actually going to happen. Uh, Del Toro keeps promising a Justice League Dark movie. I sure would like to see that movie eight million times in the theaters because I would. Who would play Constantine? Uh, I'm fine with the guy from the TV series. I believe that's Matt Wilson. That guy, is, he looks just like him. Yeah, that's the really spooky part for me. Yeah, he looks more like him than Sting, so. Yeah, which is creepy. Yeah, it really is. Uh, yeah, no, I I would be fine with that. Absolutely fine with that. Um, 
but I I love the cast of Justice League Dark. Like, there's not a character in there that I don't like. Um, and of course, if Del Toro was involved, it would be perfect for the special effects. Like, oh my God, I so want to see Del Toro do Swamp Thing. That would be the first DC movie uh, since the end of Nolan's Batman run that I would be willing to go like pre-order tickets for if Del Toro actually made the movie. I would be there, but even if Matthew Wilson was not playing uh, Constantine. Yeah, I can't think of another actor for the part. Like, he's definitely, like, say what you will about that TV show, I think he's really nailed the character. I agree. I just totally agree. What about TV show-wise, Hannah? Oh, Young Avengers. Good God, Young Avengers. I think Young Avengers would make an absolutely great TV show, especially on, like, the CW or something. Like, I'm not a really big fan of uh, Arrow, and I haven't watched Flash at all. But, like, I could totally see the Young Avengers just being a network TV show. Obviously, I'd prefer it on Netflix. But, oh, gosh. Like, the first... The first half of that series was kind of weird and a lot of strange stuff happened to the Young Avengers specifically because um, they really emerged like kind of in the middle of Civil War. But if they could tie it into the Marvel events like that and see like, you know, um, when when Hawkeye basically passes the mantle to Kate Bishop. Oh, my God, I want to see that on the screen. That would be so cool. That would be super cool. And then Gillen's run, I think, was like pretty TV cinematic in the first place. So I think it would film really well. That would be super cool. It could have tie-ins with the uh, Hawkeye TV show. It could, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If it was a a Marvel show, they would all be connected. That's just something we would have to expect. So we would see a Coulson crossover, and if there was enough money involved, a Chris Evans crossover. I would be down with that. Yeah, so TV-wise, I'm getting Daredevil. It's going to be fine. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to have a party. We're going to talk about it. For a movie, I I love comic book movies. And I'm not entirely sure I want to see a story that I love on screen. I, I worry that it would get like the slavish dedication that ruins a, a movie. Um, for instance, Watchmen, like a shot-by-shot recreation of panels that shouldn't be done that way because it just doesn't translate very well. That being said, I would prefer, instead of Infinity War or Infinity Gauntlet, whatever it's going to be with uh, Phase 3, I would just love to see the uh, Infinity Run that was uh, the event from a year or two ago Mostly for one particular scene, and I will link this in the show notes, because who doesn't want to see Thor being the negotiator for uh, the Avengers? Like, tell me that does not sound awesome. <laughs> that that sounds pretty cool. So yeah, that's why I want to see that, because that would be super cinematic. Other than that, um, I don't want to see a saga movie. I, I just don't. I want saga to remain a comic. I could potentially see, like, Gotham by Midnight as a cool TV series as well. Um, But that's the other thing. The more I think about it, the more I want, like, TV over movie. And that's just how I want to see my comics. I mean, comics are 
traditionally an episodic format, so television generally works a lot better for them. You know what I would absolutely love to see? Law and Order She-Hulk. Law and Order She-Hulk, I would totally I would pay I would I would get a subscription just to watch that show. Yeah, that would be pretty incredible. Okay. So here we are at the end of our show. Um before we end, we should have some corrections. We're going to talk about how we disappointed Lockjaw. I actually have a correction. Oh, go go. <clears throat> I feel like I have disappointed Lockjaw. Uh, and in particular, owe somebody an apology. I feel like I owe Chris Claremont an apology. Chris Claremont is the writer of Nightcrawler Number One. Uh, a couple episodes ago, I just dropped that Nightcrawler Number One was a terrible comic, and uh, what I should have said instead is that I did not care for Nightcrawler Number One. Uh, I'm a writer too, and I know exactly how difficult that can be when you know hundreds of nameless people out there are just spitting crap about uh, the stuff that you produce. You know, it can be pretty damaging. I'd imagine that Chris Claremont was pretty happy and proud to see his work in print. You know, with a Marvel name on it. You know, the, uh, he's writing for Nightcrawler, and that is definitely something to be proud of. I didn't like the book. You know, um, I thought I had too many swashes and not enough buckles. Uh, I understand where he was trying to go with the story. He was trying to bring the character back to his more Errol Flynn style days. But, you know, the run itself just didn't work for me. Um, so from now on, uh, I feel like I'm going to do my best to instead of just dropping things like this sucks or that's terrible to uh give reasons why I didn't like something and give some, you know, hopefully constructive criticism to the people that produced it because, you know, if you, uh, if you're a writer and, you know, if you're an artist and you're putting your stuff out there for review, I have a lot of respect for you and, you know, you have a lot that, uh, you deserve to be proud of except for Terry Goodkind. Your stuff just sucks. I think that's pretty appropriate. Like we are trying to be positive and even when we don't like something, we should be on the up and up about it. That being said, such a, a strong visceral reaction to that book is also pretty appropriate. Hannah, do you have anything, any confessions about how you disappointed Lockjaw of late? Um, yeah, actually, uh, so this is less of a correction and more of an apology of my own. Um, in episode five, we were talking about uh, Journey into Mystery and Kid Loki. And I realized afterwards that I kind of um actually all over Nick. Uh, and I realized I'm very passionate about that title, but I still shouldn't be quite that pedantic about it. Um, so we try really hard to be accurate here. Uh, but at the same time, we should be able to embrace everybody's enthusiasms and recognize that when people are just getting into something, they are in fact just getting into something. So I guess this is less of a correction and more of a, I, this is a thing I want to work on being better about. So sorry about that, Nick. And I'm going to work on that in the future. It's a-okay for me. For the record, everybody, Hannah was right. <laughs> well, damn. Me, personally, I'm just going to stop disappointing Lockjaw by figuring out exactly where the mic should go. Um, this will probably not change until uh, I have an actual quote-unquote studio where we do the recording, but that's coming.
One quick correction. I meant to say one mile west, not one mile east. One mile east of where C2E2 is going to be held is Lake Michigan. And I don't live underwater. I live in a neighborhood called Bridgeport. So I got my geography wrong and I apologize to Lockjaw for failing basic geography. Okay, guys. Where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Totally a Rogue. <clears throat> you can find me on Twitter at Out of the Vault. And I'm Marty, and you can find me at Officer Gleason. You can also find All Comics Considered on Twitter at All Comics Cast. You can find us on Tumblr at allcomicsconsidered.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Facebook at All Comics Considered. And you can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh my god, I almost forgot that you could find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. That's good for me. Good job, Mart Mart. Um, if we are disappointing you, please tell Lockjaw how much by emailing us at lockjaw at allcomicsconsidered.com. Thanks for hanging out with us, everyone. Catch you next week when you check your poll box. <laughs> <laughs>